You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 86 of In Country, the podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. With this episode, I'm back to my classic format of the show, where I'm going to be looking at a comic and some historical context surrounding the time when the book takes place. That comic is issue number 76 of the NOM, and the month and year I'm going to be looking at this time around is June of 1972. Our song is I'll Take You There by the Staple Singers, which was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in June of 72. The song is from the group's album Be Altitude, Respect Yourself, an album that reached 19 on the album charts in 72, and also featured one of the band's other hits, Respect Yourself. This was the only week it hit number one on the mainstream pop charts, although it did spend four weeks on top of the R&B singles charts. It was ranked as song number 276 on Rolling Stone's list of the top 500 songs of all time, and in 1999 received the honor of being inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. It's also been used in television commercials and movies. It's had a number of notable covers, including one by General Public that was featured in the 1994 movie Threesome. That one hit number 22 on the pop charts. Incidentally, the song was also sampled by Salt and Peppa in 1991 for their hit song Let's Talk About Sex. Our issue came out on November 24, 1992, with a January 1993 cover date and a cover price of $1.75. The cover is by Mike Harris, and it shows the classic Nam character Rob Little, dressed in a pair of jeans and a red jacket that says Vietnam 1968-1971 on the back, standing in front of a grave. His right arm has a crutch, one of those crutches that also, also has a brace, so it's kind of a cross between a crutch and a cane. And behind the grave is a surprint of the image of Ed Marks, Rob, and Top from their days in country. The logo is outlined in black with no fill, so the image of the surprint goes through it, and running down the right side of the cover is the word Brothers in that classic stamped-out military-esque font. I should also note that the image of Rob from his days in country is also in the issue box in the upper left-hand corner. It's a nice, effective cover. When I came across this in my in the bin at my LCS back when I was collecting the series, I will say that it stuck out at me as something that seemed like it might be important to the series in some way, or at least sort of import, sort of an important story. We actually have a couple of stories within this issue. The one that shares its title with the cover copy, Brothers, is a stateside story that serves as a framing device for the issue. The creative team on this is Don Lomax's story, Mike 
Harris pencils, Jimmy Palmiotti inks, Phil Felix letters, John Calise colors, Tim Tui assistant editor, Don Daly editor, and Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. We open in June of 1972. The setting is a graveyard near sunset, and the splash page is reflective of the cover with Rob Little standing at the grave of his younger brother, Eugene. Our cover copy says, Whenever he can, Rob Little visits the grave of his younger brother, Eugene. They had their differences growing up like most brothers do, but with three tours of duty in Vietnam and four Purple Hearts, Rob is shocked to be the one standing there staring down at the cold, gray headstone. Rob is a veteran, but then so is Eugene, like Vietnam, an undeclared war, but a war just the same. Rob apologizes for not stopping by very often over the last few weeks and then tells Eugene about how he saw Ed Marks' name in the paper. He then launches into a story about Marks, which is our other story in the book, and it's called The Paymaster. This is the same writer, letterer, colorist, and editorial team, but it is drawn by regular non-penciler Wayne Van Zant. This takes us back to the beginning of the series, specifically issue number two, where Top and Sergeant Poclo were in the power struggle that would eventually see the end of Top's reign. At this point, Sarge is at a meeting, so Top walks into Ed and Rob's hooch to tell them that he has a mission for them. They are to escort a paymaster to various points in the country so that he can deliver back pay to a number of soldiers in the field. The two of them suggest that they run it by Sarge, but Top says he doesn't care what Sarge would have to say and orders them to get a jeep and drive to Tan Somnut to find Lieutenant Wilcox, who is the paymaster they will be working with. They arrive there and they board a chopper. The first stop is an Arvin outpost of Tay Nin, where they see a specialist named Colby, who is a dog handler. When they arrive, the dog pounces on Wilcox, who begs the boys to shoot it off of him, but they know that's just as dangerous. Colby comes out of his bunker and tells the dog, Hatchet, to get off the lieutenant. He then gladly accepts his back pay. The second stop is Sergeant Broyce, who is west of Bon Mi Thought? Tot? near the Cambodian border. They meet up with his unit, and one of the men points to a mountain pass and tells them that Broyce's job is to guard that pass, and they'll probably find him high up in a tree. True enough, they do. And Broyce doesn't want his money. He's annoyed that they have approached him and maybe given him a position away to nearby VC, and he suggests that they give the money to a local orphanage. Wilcox doesn't want to take no for an answer, and Broyce pulls his gun on him from up in the tree. Rob intervenes and says they don't want to waste more Broyce's time, but they do need the paperwork signed. He sends it up in the tree, and then Broyce signs it, and he sends it back down, and then they're on their merry way. Next up is the 1st Air Cavalry and on key, looking for a corporal colloquy. They get him out of his tent, he signs the paper, then he goes back inside where he has been playing poker. He bets all of his back play and promptly loses it. He has a casual you-win-some-you-lose-some attitude about it, much to the surprise of Ed and Rob. Stop number four requires transport by PBR boat to find PFC Norbert L. Strauss, who is supposed to be assigned to an engineer platoon helping construct a bridge upriver. The bridge construction is under heavy mortar fire, and they take the risk, making their way to where they find Strauss on a table with a toe tag. The next morning, they head up to the DMZ, where they are looking for a squad of troopers serving with the 2nd of the 5th Marines in a joint Army-Marine operation near Hiep Duk. 
Wilcox says that he's starting to realize the insanity of the mission, and that it's really opened his eyes to the reality of what's going on in the war. After all, he has spent his entire time in Vietnam riding a desk over in Saigon. They catch a helicopter in Da Nang that is going to fly into a hot landing zone where they are looking for a Roselli. The chopper approaches, and we see that Roselli is on the ground and wounded. Wilcox jumps out, grabs Roselli in a fireman's carry, and brings him aboard. Unfortunately, the chopper is too heavy, and the pilot yells for them to throw anything off that is creating extra weight. This includes the $6,200 that Wilcox is carrying. Wilcox is mortified because he doesn't know how he is going to explain this to his superiors. Back at the mess hall, Wilcox is drowning his sorrows in coffee when all of Roselli's unit comes up to him and they voluntarily sign over their pay to cover for Wilcox. After all, he saved the life of one of their brothers. And the least they can do is give up that month's pay to thank him. We are then back in 1972, where Rob is sitting at the grave. He finishes telling the story, and the cemetery groundskeeper approaches him. They talk a little, and the groundskeeper asks Rob how Eugene died. Rob then talks about 1969, when Rob came home and fought with Eugene over his little brother's desire to sign up and serve in the war. Eugene talks about Rob getting all the glory, and Rob responds by saying that there is no glory for him. There's only death over there, and that ever since getting back, he's been attacked and called all sorts of names, such as Baby Killer. Eugene goes to enlist anyway, but he's declared 4F due to high blood sugar. Eugene then falls in with a bad crowd, becomes more withdrawn, fights with his brother some more, and while Rob is frustrated, his father reminds him that Eugene is his own man at this point, and he is just unsure of what to do. A few weeks later, his dad removes the door from Eugene's bedroom and finds his stash of heroin, along with $100 bills and a revolver. Eugene had been dealing drugs, and upon finding out this info, Rob runs out to the street to find his brother, but it is too late. Eugene has been shot dead in a drug deal gone wrong. Rob swears he recognizes the face of the shooter, but doesn't exactly believe it. And we see a large, bald black man that could be top. Rob says, I know that face will haunt me until I get some answers. And the groundskeeper says, good luck. To peel back the curtain a little bit, a few weeks ago I was in a was a third party and a back and forth on Twitter concerning the quality of this book throughout its run. What started the discussion was a tweet featuring the cover to issue 41. That's the issue with Thor, Cap, and Iron Man, if you don't remember. And the person tweeting used the phrase, jump the shark. If you're unfamiliar with that particular phrase, it means the moment that you realize a work has gone downhill in quality, and it's named for the now infamous episode of Happy Days where Fonzie strapped him some water skis and jumped over a shark. I actually covered this entire concept on episode 84 of Pop Culture Affidavit, which came out back in January uh, of 2018. A friend of mine, friend of the show, and once in future guest Luke Giaconetti defended the book and asked for my opinion. I did see that the Punisher issues were definitely sales grabs, especially considering the popularity of the character at the time. But issue 41 was not a sign that the Nam had jumped the shark. I know that it was around this time that Doug Murray was nearing the end of his run, and even he said of the tail end of his time in the book wasn't his favorite work. But as I've mentioned, Chuck Dixon breathed some life into the title, and I think Don Lomax has done the same. In fact, while the book does get canceled due to low sales, uh, there's a lot of good stuff in the last part of its run. This issue is a great example of that. 
I talked about how I like the cover, but I'll get into the issue itself right now. One of the great things that I'm seeing about Don Lomax's run of this title is his use of the original cast of characters. Chuck Dixon really didn't bring us back to the original group, and I think that actually worked out for the better. Not that I don't think he wouldn't have done a good job with Ed Marks and his friends, but I felt that when he came on, his taking things in a slightly different direction was a much-needed change. Plus, he's one of the best action writers in the biz, but now, coming back to these characters several years after their tour feels natural, and I love that not only are we seeing Ed as a journalist, but we're getting the stateside stuff as well. So we're getting a real full look at the experience of soldiers, which is something that this title has earned after all of this time. This issue works incredibly well, too, because whereas a number of the prior stateside stories have basically been backup stories or have been connected to the main story in some way, this one is weaved into the main story. The main story is this flashback that takes advantage of the fact that Doug Murray's original concept was to tell stories from the war month to month in real time, so you could certainly throw it in there on a random day or week between all of that action. It's a lighthearted one with a nice button on the end that I thought was very necessary, considering that we spent all of number, issue number 75 looking at various perspectives on the Mi Lai Massacre, which is easily one of the darkest episodes of the war. So what Lomax does here is pulled back a little. He gives us a little bit of a breather. The story of the paymaster going from person to person is funny at times. It also gives us a look at the type of soldier that we really haven't seen very much of, the desk jockey. Wilcox reminds me of some of the officers that we see in movies like Good Morning Vietnam. You know, the types who are in country but don't really get into the thick of it. Plus, he's a bean counter, so we get a little bureaucratic humor from time to time. Lomax is a good handle on the way these characters would have acted more than 70 issues ago, and this feels like it fits right into those early issues. Top is petty, Ed and Rob are in their naive guys phase, and the ridiculousness of the mission they're given is just right. Plus, you have Wayne Van Sant on art, and as I have said plenty of times in recent episodes, he's well into his own here. The characters look familiar, and the action is well rendered. Plus, when Lomax has to add pathos to the story, it doesn't feel too forced. There's that point where Wilcox sees the one guy's body and eventually comes to realize that he was so focused on getting his job done that he really missed seeing the war for what it really is. It's not a heavy-handed message of, now I see that war is hell and wrong, but more of a, I guess an appreciation is the right word here? an appreciation for what's really going on and what the troops are really up against. And then he gets in on the action because he realizes that someone's life is more important than his job. He, he saves Roselli, and in what is a bit of a pat ending, he gets repaid by the men who talk about the brotherhood among soldiers. Now, I don't inject my own views about politics, war, the politics of war, or the Vietnam War into this podcast because it's not my job. I'm learning more about this war with everything I cover, and while I do have my opinions, they're filtered through and informed by the hindsight that comes with being born four years after we left the war and two years after the fall of Saigon. But I will offer that I often find the all-or-nothing, with-us-or-against-us dichotomy not to be a healthy view, and honestly think that when a writer goes all-in with that, it can come off as quite lazy. I don't know what Don Lomax's political views are. I do know that he is a Vietnam vet himself, much like Doug Murray, so he's come from an honest place, and what I see is someone who's trying to give us some of the complexities of the situation and even inject some sort of nuance. 
It's not much, after all, consider the medium and the audience of the time, but Wilcox as a character gets an aha moment of a light bulb going off with, without it followed by like a forced monologue. It works very well here. Plus, it works with the pathos of the framing device. Rob's telling his brother an amusing but ultimately touching story. Then we get his brother's story, which is sad. Eugene falls into the same trap a number of youths fell into this during this time, especially those in cities. He began dealing drugs, and I think perhaps using them as well. And we see that ended his life. It's short, and the way that Harris and Palmiotti have laid out the pages, you have Rob standing in his jeans and jacket narrating these panel-by-panel flashbacks that show the fight with Eugene and how their father is at a loss for what to do, and then how it reaches its inevitable end. I'd say that it's probably too quick, but if you keep in mind that he's telling this to another person he just met and there are only four pages for our creative team to tell that story, I think they do it nice and succinct. The change in art is a little jarring at first, but Harris and Palmiotti do a solid job. In fact, they've improved since I first saw their work. Overall, I enjoyed this issue. It felt special without being too much of a very special episode. Now, let's take a look at the letters and ads. Incoming this month, Dan Woodward uh, from Fresno talks about... He says it's one of Marvel's best-kept secrets. There's no foil stamp die-cut covers, polybag stuff. Remember, we're like full into the 90s here, and the Nam really never did any of this stuff. And he says uh, he says he would like to humbly request that you keep the Punisher in his own monthly title. It's three monthly books, geez, and out of this one. Adam Rissling of Manhattan Beach, California, says he's 12 years old. He's been reading the comics since issue 17. He thinks it's great that there's a comic about the Nam that can teach kids what really went on in the Vietnam War, and he has a couple of suggestions. He says, I think you should document the Tet Offensive as a three-part series. Also, you should have an issue about helicopter pilots. Besides that, your comic is the best. And the editor responds, you won't have long to wait, Adam. A three-part story concerning the Tet Offensive is barreling down the production lines now. Look for issues 78 Sorry, 79, 80, and 81. The three covers by Michael Golden will form a triptych poster. As far as your second suggestion, issue number 86. Who says we don't listen? John J. Carney of Salem, Massachusetts is going to write. I'm going to read this. After reading issue number 15, I realized what a great job Marvel was doing in telling an honest story of the Vietnam War. Homecoming for most vets like myself was that hard. Sadly, I did not have the patience at that time to sit down and express my feelings on this subject in a letter. I still faithfully read every issue. I found issues number 32 and 36 right on target, especially the first issue and the way it deals with the hard times young soldiers had with the constant anti-war battering by the media, and the same from many people in their lives. Also, the issue dealing with racism during the war was as real as I can get. The murder of Dr. King led to many violent acts among fellow soldiers during the last years of the war. After reading the five-part story, The Death of Joe Hallen, I have no doubt this series was becoming the most honestly written history of the war, with the exception of A Bright Shining Lie, the biography of General John Vaughn. After reading that five-parter, I finally wrote you guys a letter but never mailed it for the same reason. This brings us to your current issue, the story of Operation Chicken Lips. Over the past few years, I have been lucky enough to be involved with the best outreach program for Vietnam vets in Boston, Massachusetts, and with their help, I have begun to express my emotions concerning the war. 
The last three issues brought back personal feelings of mine from an operation I was part of in 1971. As a member of a transportation battalion, I was part of Operation Lam Son 719, an invasion into Laos to close the Ho Chi Minh Trail for good. To be as brief as possible, due to decisions made in Saigon and Washington, D.C., this operation turned into a disaster. Like the soldiers of Chicken Lips, we were ordered to shut down all fire bases along the Laos border and desert our Arvin brothers in a massive retreat to the south of the Quang Tri province. Please keep up the good work. The collection of this series should be used in every school and country to tell the true story of the Vietnam War. Ben Moffat of Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, um, says he's got a huge collection so far. He's got a oh, he's missing a couple issues. He says, I wonder what is in store for the comic when it reaches the end of the war. You could do more stories like 1959 through 61 and show different divisions of the armed forces like the Navy and the Air Force. Or you could tell what happened to the other characters when they returned to the world. Or you could tell the story of another unit, maybe an armor division. In any case, I can't wait to see what happens next. And he's thanked for the suggestions. Teresa Rayburn of Huntington, Nevada, says that her father, she's learning a lot, her father and her two uncles were in Vietnam. They don't feel very comfortable talking about their time in the war. Thank you for giving me the means to understand their pain. And um, Albert Barlow, Santa Ana, California, says that he is really likes the direction it's taken. He hopes the sales pick up um, so that you... Uh, don't have to resort to more Punisher crossovers. He says, when this book first started out, it was meant to be a telling of the sad period of American history in real time. It's obvious that this is no longer the case. And though I'm with it till the end, I think you owe it to us to explain how the war finally did end. The comic has been my education about that war. It's amazing. I know more about how it was than do my parents, who luckily only watched it on television. I have only one memory of that war. I was born in 68, so maybe it's more imagination than memory, and that is of troops loading wounding men into a slick while still other troops ran around in the background. I think it was Cronkite doing the commentary, and I, my mother said something like, I wish they'd end this stupid war. I remember her crying for all the men dying over there. Again, it, maybe it never happened. He says, my heart goes out to the vets and the many people who died over there. Thank you for helping me to understand. And we have some nom notes just to wrap this letter column up. We have LZ is a landing zone. VC is Viet Cong. CP is command post. Daily dailies are daily anti-malaria pills. AO is your area of operations. Diddy bopping is walking through bush recklessly. A pogue is a new guy. Charlie, as in Victor Charlie, phonetic spelling for VC. Lerp, long range reconnaissance patrol. LRRP. And slicks, passenger-carrying helicopters. Reason called slicks, they are stripped of all armament. All right, ads this month. Uh, Super Nintendo's got the hook game. I think we're finally, it's also available for NES and Game Boy. I think we're um, still about a year away from the final official last nail in the coffin for the NES. But by this time, Nintendo was really focused on its... Um, on its uh, Super Nintendo. Uh, there is an ad for uh, X-Men, the X-Men cartoon. Oh, the Night of the Sentinels uh, video and uh, saying that it's available at Toys R Us. There's also a poster that you can get and the, the TV show is now on, on Fox Kids, I believe. Prince of Persia for uh, the SNES, which was by Konami. 
flipping through, we have a ooh, the Universal Collectors Collectibles Club. It's the only kind of club in the world. Um, it is free comics for Christmas. Inter- introducing the Universal Collectibles Club, the greatest way in the world to build the collection of a lifetime. Why are all these capitalized? Why is this an upcase? It's not a headline. Anyway, now you can be part of the ex- excitement that's sweeping the nation. You need never miss out again on the very hottest, hottest collectibles in the un- universe. And you need never pay full price again. Um, UCI has the very finest in comics, role-playing games, sports and non-sports, cards, t-shirts, videos, and so much more. As a member, choose them all. From UCI's hot monthly advanced purchase catalog, the Comics Scoreboard featuring exclusive previews and over 2,000 products a month. This is the first time I have heard of this. And and I was... um, I used to get, like, uh, what's it called? Uh, Mile High's catalog. I would get previews from my LCS. I would get um, the Entertainment This Month and American Comics stuff, too. But I have never heard of this UCI thing. Let's see. Membership includes a one-year subscription to Comics Scoreboard, which is an 11.40 value, yours free, 35% off advanced purchase comics, hot giveaways, incredible discounts on all items, no minimum order, hot back issue catalog featuring unbelievably low prices, hot monthly newsletter, dynamite monthly specials, contests, hot membership card, movie and sports memorabilia, shipping schedule of your choice, and so much more. For our gift to you, if you join by December 24th, 1992, you can choose from one of these fantastic selections. The Mask Returns, number one, Spider-Man, spelled with one word, so it's not it's not Spider-Man, it's Spider-Man. Hey. <laughs> Why isn't it Spider-Man? You know, like Goldman, Silverman. Because it, it's not his last name. It isn't? No, it's not like, like Bill Spiderman. <laughs> He's a spider man. Twenty ninety nine number one, Rampage twenty ninety nine number one, and Wetworks number one. While supplies last, thereafter alternatives will be offered. And I want to tell you, I'm uh, somebody could probably verify with this with me. I'm pretty sure Wetworks didn't come out until like ninety three. I mean, maybe maybe it's maybe it was out by this time, but I remember Wetworks took forever to actually come out. Uh, bonus: Join now and take these great books at Super UCI Savings. Amazing Spider-Man three sixty-five, two dollars each. Web two, Web number ninety-two dollars each. Spawn number one, a buck twenty-five. Punisher Warzone number one, a buck twenty-five. Spirits of Vengeance number one, a buck thirty-five. Robin two, number one, fifty cents each. Pacific presents number one and two with the Rocketeer five dollars each, and um, they'll donate ten percent of your membership. They're out of Brooklyn, by the way. So here's your prices: if you want a silver membership, which is limited to a twenty-five percent discount on advanced purchase comics, that's nineteen ninety-five. A gold membership is twenty-nine ninety-five. A two-year gold membership is forty-nine ninety-five. A lifetime platinum membership is fifty-nine ninety-five. And two-year and lifetime members take fifty percent off all advanced purchase comics with your first order. This is fascinating. Somebody, t- somebody, if if you're if if you ever like encountered this or dealt with these people, please write in. I did um, 
Please write in. I know I'm tuning my own horn. It was a couple of years ago I did this great episode about American comics and entertainment and uh, and entertainment this month and Mile High Comics over at Pop Culture Affidavit. And fairly recently, within the last couple of months of this episode dropping, uh, Chris and Reggie over the Cosmic Treadmill had done this whole mail order comics or the history of the comics retailing and comics industry on their episode, and and I don't think either of us brought this up. So if anybody has ever had ever dealt with UCI, uh, get in touch. Also, go listen to my episode of Pop Culture Affidavit, and all I where I had Michael Bailey on. Um, go listen to Bailey's uh, the second of the two parter with Bailey talking about and I talking about Wizard over on Views from the Long Box, and go listen to Chris and Reggie do the Cosmic Treadmill about the comics retailing business. Um, it's really relevant to this issue anyway because we are in the thick of uh, the craziness of the market because this is like what late 92 the crash doesn't happen for at least a year um, there's an East Coast Comics ad which is basically the same East Coast Comics was like the East, it was like mile high it just didn't have a yellow background just a bunch of um, things listed Konami has the game Sunset Riders it is for the Genesis it used to be an arcade game, so it's a total Western shoot 'em out, shoot 'em up Western uh, showdown at the OK Corral type of uh, type of game. Bullpen bulletins this month uh, stands on his soapbox about Marvel UK and how they're bringing over some um, Marvel UK stuff to the U.S., including Death's Head 2, Motormouth and Kill Power, The Knights of Pendragon, Digitech, Battletide, um, the census staggering battle between Death's Head 2 and Kill Power, Warheads, Dark Angel, Team Helix, and Night Raven. Then in early 93, don't miss the way out wonderment of Mystic Wars, Death Rattle, Show Riders, Blood Seed, Gene Machine, Wild Thing, Black Axe, Super Soldiers, Gunrunner, Death Metal, and the mind-blasting mystery of Plasma. Ugh. Bunch of people are getting married. According to the bullpen bulletin thing, there's a uh, bullseye by Rick Parker and Barry Dutter that has a Marvel group wedding, and the guy standing up there is saying, "By the power invested in me by the All Footer Odin and the and the Almighty Stan Lee, I now pronounce all used man and wife. Now let's eat." And he's holding instead of holding up a Bible, he's holding up an over an overpriced street guide. Uh, uh, uh. Um, and then there's this whole border, remember the bull time, bullpen borderline blather, um, and uh, which replaced the coolometer. So we've got conventional wisdom, Hubble, constants, state of grace, hidden agendas, miniature foods, space rope, multiculturalism, rap stars named ice, quality timed, shocked courts. Red Shift, John Cage, Missing in Action, Talent Free Individuals, Joe Schuster, Ten Dimensional Guitar, Om Mani Padme, Super Strings, Pleasure Principle, Zeitgeist, Intellectual Property, Nirvana, BEs, Legal Deguk, Peer Pressure, Blood Sugar Level, Metaphorical Companions, and Dracula. ETM, here we go. Speaking of of the uh, retailers that brought us all the love, <laughs> um, don't miss another issue. ETM is the biggest and the best. All or postmarked or faxed by January fourth, nineteen ninety three. We'll get a free Image Comics nineteen ninety three preview. Right, Spider Man's got a holographics metallic cover featuring the nasty returns of Carnage and Venom. Amazing Spider Man will 
number 375 will be blisteringly hot um ooh venom number one and two of the debut of venom's own series secret defenders due to popular demand the defenders return high by a foil stamped cover this all-new monthly team book because it can't miss Darkhawk's origin is revealed in the double-sized 25th issue, highlighted by a holographics foil cover, and this issue will be hot. Punisher 2099, meet Jake Gallows, the Vigilante of Tomorrow, all-new, very violent series recommended. Spawn features a story by Alan Moore, a full-color poster by Frank Miller, and stellar art by Tyler Farland. Spawn number 8 will be hot. Valiant Comics has gained acclaim for publishing full-color innovative superhero stories. Exo Mana War guest stars Turok and ties into Turok number one, and you know you won't be able to find a copy of that. Wild Star, this is the Jerry Ordway, I believe, uh, s- series. Wild Star is the ultimate killing machine, all new violent series from Image Comics. They really love to put the word violent on these ads, don't they? Uh, anything else? Sandman, Death's, uh, Death number one was out, The High Cost of Living number one. Um, we are at Batman 490 with the Riddler, so we are really getting close to Nightfall at this point, because I believe Nightfall started like the next issue, if I'm not mistaken. X-Men Series 2, the trading cards, including the X-Men, X-Factor, X-Force, and more. All right. And then we have a special offer, the usual thing now, uh, the usual subscription thing with a bunch of gifts on it. And we have a ad for the Wayne's World VCR board game. It comes with a backstage pass, which is cool credentials for cool party animals. Five party markers let you crash Party Central. No way into Party Central with this condiment, which is Grey Poupon. Um, of course, it says this is all the things you get. Not. Ugh. It's a 45-minute videotape of original footage of Wayne and Garth. Actually, it's kind of interesting to see if that actually... I wonder if it, I'm sure somebody on YouTube has taken a look at this, or somebody blogged about this. And it looks like you're trying to get to Party Central, and you've got the Babitude Zone, and monkeys might fly out of my butt, and you're partying on and stuff, and there's a picture of a girl in cowboy boots, um, scrunched cowboy boots, Daisy Dukes and a tube top and it says Schwing and then around the corner just like the bullpen thing it says Dweebs you are not worthy of even glancing at the unattainable unattainable mega babe above but you can play the coolest excellent game in the universe till you hurl just pop the Wayne and Garth videotape into your VCR and those raucous rockers will lead you round the totally awesome game board right into Party Central on the way collect party makers babes and hunks and a coveted backstage pass become the ultimate party animal, then maybe you'll be good enough for the babe. Yeah, right. And monkey might fly out of my butt. Oh, God, the 90s. Um, and then finally, in the back cover, there's Squaresoft's Myst- Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, out-of-body experience, $39.99 for the Super Nintendo. That does it for letters and ads. I'm going to take a quick break, and then when I get back, I'm going to take a look at June of 1972. Stick around. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, 
Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. And we are back to look at what was going on in June of 1972. The source of this stuff is both Wikipedia and the History Place. On June 1st, Hanoi admits Operation Linebacker first is causing uh, severe disruptions. On June 2nd, Major Roger Locker, whose F-4D had been shot down on May 10th, was finally rescued after 23 days behind enemy lines. He was 60 miles or 97 kilometers northwest of Hanoi, and within five miles or eight kilometers of the heavily defended MiG airbase at Yen Bai Airfield. 7th Air Force General John Vaught canceled the entire strike mission set for Hanoi that day and dedicated all available resources to rescuing Lockhart. Direct task force of 119 aircraft successfully pulled him out of the jungle without any losses. His time behind enemy lines and successful rescue was a record for the Vietnam War. It was the farthest penetration of an American search and rescue operation into North Vietnam. On June 4th, the presidential election held in the Khmer Rouge Republic of Cambodia resulted in victory for the Im- incumbent Lan Nol, although counting within the capital of Phnom Penh should a majority for the challenger in Tom. Lan Nol ordered the military to collect and count the poll results from the countryside wherein Tom had had greater support and was soon declared the winner. On June 8th, a South Vietnamese village outside of Trang Bang was bombed with napalm and an errant airstrike by the South Vietnamese army shortly after 11.30 a.m. Hyung Kong Nick Ut took a photograph that became an iconic symbol of the horrors of the war. The wire photo, published on the front page of the newspapers that evening and the next morning, showed children crying in pain from their burns, including a nine-year-old girl, Phan Thi Kim Phuc, who had torn her clothes off after catching fire. Its image would go on to win a Pulitzer Prize. So a little bit about that photo, with, uh, which along with the execution photo I talked about when we looked at issue number 24 of this book, is one of the most famous photos of the Vietnam War. Nick Ut is Vietnamese himself, and he started taking photographs for the Associated Press in the late 1960s when he was all of 16. As mentioned, he was present for and a witness to the napalm bombing that he then photographed. But he also did help those who were victims, including Phan Thi Kim Phuc, who, after he took those pictures, he helped her and the other children in the picture to the hospital where she was not expected to live because of her very severe burns. I'll get to more information on her later, but for now, a little more history about the photograph, its publication, and its impact on history. The publication of the photo was actually debated among Ut's 
editors at the AP because of its content, specifically the fact that they were going to send a photograph of a naked girl over the wire. Oates' Wikipedia page has some recollection from him, and he says, An editor at the AP rejected the photo of Kim Fuck running down the road without clothing because it showed frontal nudity. Pictures of nudes of all ages and sexes, especially front views, were an absolute no-no at the Associated Press in 1972. Horse Fast argued by Telex with the New York head office that an exception has to be made, with the compromise that no close-up of the girl alone would be transmitted. The New York photo editor Hal Buell agreed that the news value of the photograph overrode any reservations about nudity. As mentioned, the photo did go on to win a Pulitzer and got the attention of much of the country, including Richard Nixon, who had yet to become embroiled in the Watergate scandal, but was running for re-election in November of 1972 against George McGovern, an election he would eventually win by a considerable margin. Some of the tapes confiscated in the course of the Watergate investigation did include Nixon and his chief of staff, H.R. Halderman, talking about the photo, openly wondering if it was staged or, as he put it, fixed. Utt also commented on this in the early 2000s. Even though it has become one of the most memorable images of the 20th century, President Nixon once doubted the authenticity of my photograph when he saw it in the papers of June 17, 1972. The picture for me, and unquestionably for many others, could not have been more real. The photo was as authentic as the Vietnam War himself. The horror of the Vietnam War recorded by me did not have to be fixed. The terrified little girl is still alive today and has become an eloquent testimony to the authenticity of that photo. That moment 30 years ago will be one Kim Folk and I will never forget. It has ultimately changed both of our lives. Incidentally, the photo was also embroiled in some minor controversy in late summer of 2016 when Facebook censored it, saying it violated its standards. After a significant outcry, it then allowed the photograph to be published. As for Kim Fook, Ut visited her continuously in the hospital while she was covering from her burns until he had to flee Saigon in April of 1975, and he has also kept in touch with her continuously since the end of the war. She had a very long recovery, but ultimately did survive and eventually studied in both Vietnam and Cuba, which is where she met her husband. In 1992, she and her husband were on their way from Cuba to a honeymoon in Moscow, and when the plane stopped in Gander, Newfoundland to refuel, she got off and asked for political asylum. This, by the way, was pretty common in the latter parts of the Cold War and is recounted briefly in Jim, journalist Jim DeFeedy's book, The Day the World Came to Town, which is about 9-11 in Gander, Newfoundland. It is a wonderful book that I highly recommend. Fook has been an activist and writer and contributed to NPR's This, I Believe, essay series. In it, she talks about the bombing, her recovery, and her and her family struggled to survive after the war. She attributes her continuing survival to her conversion to Christianity in the 1980s. I'll link to the entire essay in the audio file in the show notes, but here is an excerpt that speaks about forgiveness. Forgiveness made me free from hatred. I still have many scars on my body and severe pain most days, but my heart is cleansed. Napalm is very powerful, but faith, forgiveness, and love are much more powerful. We would not have war at all if ever true love, hope, and forgiveness. I also do want to note that the attack was also captured on film by journalist Alan Downs for the British ITN News Service, and his footage adds more to the context of the attack and shows how the children were helped by the journalists present. 
That footage would be used in the 1974 Academy Award-winning documentary, Hearts and Minds. And finally, rounding us out, a few other things, a few other events in June. On June 9th, senior U.S. military advisor John Paul Van is killed in a helicopter tra- crash near Ply Ku. He had been assisting South Vietnamese troops in defense of Kantum. June 17th, while not a Vietnam War moment, truly an important moment in American history, especially the 70s, at around 2.30 in the morning, five men, James W. McCord Jr., Bernard Barker, Eugenio Martinez, Frank Sturgis, and Virgilio Gonzalez, or Virgilio Gonzalez, were arrested at Democratic National Committee headquarters on the sixth floor of the Watergate office building in Washington, D.C. by city police. Sergeant Paul Leeper and plainclothes officers John Barrett and Charles Schulfer arrived after being called by security guard Frank Wills. The attempt by President Nixon to prevent the FBI from investigating the break-in would unravel his presidency and go on to be known as the Watergate scandal. On June 28th, South Vietnamese troops began a counteroffensive to retake Quang Tri province, aided by U.S. gunfire, Navy gunfire, and B-52 bombardments. And on June 30th, 1972, General Frederick C. Whalen replaces General Abrams as MACV commander in Vietnam. And that'll do it for this episode. Come back next time, and I'm going to continue on with uh, the NAM issue number 77. Until then... Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at popaff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Feel free to write into the show or share your thoughts on Facebook. I'm over at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. And until then, thanks for listening and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom.